when people ask me, like, how do you have the courage to just ask random strangers on the street? And I think to myself, imagine you were walking behind two people on the street and you saw a $100 bill right behind them and you pick it up. And of course, you're going to ask either of them, hey, is this yours? Is this yours? Like, did you lose this? Right? Like, and you wouldn't feel shy. I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't. Nothing is how it was. I am not the same. Our city is not the same. The face and fabric of our community has been fundamentally transformed. I don't recognize it. I'm Tanya, and you're listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Tova Klein in honor of Shayna Simon's first birthday. Happy birthday, Shayna. To sponsor an episode or become a paying subscriber of the podcast, please visit the link in the show notes, patreon.com slash humanandholy, or reach out through the contact form on our website, humanandholy.com. If you would like to sponsor an episode for a specific milestone or date, please reach out in advance so we can ensure that you get the date that you want. Today, I have something really special for you in honor of Yudhvat. And as always, I am very excited. Yudhvat is the anniversary of the day that the Lubavitcher Rebbe accepted his role as leader of the Chabad community and ultimately became a leader of world Jewry in his time. Today, I explore two powerful initiatives that the Rebbe spearheaded that fundamentally changed the way Jews interact with the world. I spoke to two women, Dini Hecht and Imbal Levin, both women whose lives have been deeply affected by the Rebbe's vision for the world. One living on Shluchos in McAllen, Texas, a place she moved to years after the Rebbe passed. The other, a private school teacher, a modest model in the secular fashion industry, and a scriptwriter for a future show about her grandparents' history, each of them ambassadors of light in their corners of the world. You could be living in a small city in Texas that borders Mexico. You could be living in Brooklyn, in the center of the Jewish world. You could hold the official title of Shlucha. You could work in a completely secular environment, no matter where you are. You have the exact tools you need to carry out God's mission to reveal this world as the beautiful garden that it is. Let's start at the beginning. It was 1951, six years after the Holocaust, a battered generation seeking to rebuild. They were gathered in honor of the Yartzeit, the date of passing of the previous Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, when suddenly, after a year of resisting the role of Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, now famously known as the Lubavitcher Rebbe, began to chant the holy tune of the Mimer, the Hasidic Discourse, that was reserved for special days and, most importantly, was only used by a Rebbe, 
the room fell silent. The Hasidim held their breaths. This moment was the defining moment. It was the birth of a generation and a new future for the Chabad movement. So began the Rebbe's words on that day, on Yud Shvat, January 17, 1951. The opening line of the mimer, Basi Lagani Achosikala, is translated as, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. It is a line pulled from the book of Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, written by King Solomon as a metaphor for the relationship that God has with his people. Referring to the world as a garden is a concept with some heavy biblical roots. You might recognize it from the very first garden that shows up in the Torah, the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were given free access to all of the heavenly delights. God only had one request of them not to eat from the tree of knowledge. But their curiosity got the better of them. They ate from the tree, and God expelled them from the garden. And the Shekhinah, the divine presence, went into hiding. A couple subsequent sins, and the garden became a distant memory. God could no longer be so clearly seen in the world's landscape. And none of this was a mistake. It was all preparing us for this very moment. The Shekhinah's return started with Avraham, the father of the Jewish people who began to expose the darkness of idolatry that his society was so consumed with and reveal the godly reality of the world. It continued from generation to generation of righteous leaders all the way until Moses, who was the seventh. And according to the Torah, all sevens are cherished. So he had the honor of being the leader through whom the Torah was given to the Jewish people. He was the final link to bring the Shekhinah back into the world. And then we have us. Seven generations from the first Chabad Rebbe. In our own exile. Seventy years ago, the Rebbe said, This world is a garden. It began as a garden. And that is where we will return. But this time, it's up to us. We are a generation of gardeners. I can choose to see the mud as a reflection of filth. Or I can choose to see it as an opportunity for planting. I could see our reality as a doomsday reality. Or I could see it as an empowering responsibility. Our generation is simply about returning to the original garden, only this time so much deeper because it's happening through our choices. We are bringing the divine presence back here into the mess of the physical world through our slow, personal, and radical transformations. I am confident that in my lifetime, in our lifetime, we will be able to look God in the eye and say, welcome to your garden. Welcome to your world. Look around you. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful place. The words that the Rebbe began his leadership with are a thread that is woven through his entire lifetime. It seemed to be his mission statement, the underlying belief that propelled every project forward. This world is a garden. Through our work, we reveal the inherent beauty of a godly world. Within a year of assuming the role of leader, the Rebbe began working on one of his most transformational projects, Shlachus. Throughout his lifetime, he sent his chassidim to the most far-flung corners of the world to bring Jewish education and resources to cities that had none. Shlichus is the most radical act of Avas Yisrael. To love a stranger, a fellow Jew, so much that people uproot their lives, move away from family, friends, in order to bring Judaism to fellow souls living in the most random corners of the world. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dini Hecht, a young shlicha who lives in McAllen, Texas, a small city on the border of Mexico, with only a couple hundred Jews for miles. We discuss what pushed her to move to a place with so few Jews, what it feels like to grow into the Rebbe's vision for the world, and how each of us can be God's gardeners, no matter where we live. Hi, Dini. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, so nice. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Shlachas. You are on Shlachas in McAllen, Texas for how many years? We're coming to 13 years. Wow. Oh my gosh. I remember this as a kid, you moving on Shlachas. I would love for you to share with us a little bit about what that process of moving on Shlachas was like, what went into the decision. I want to pull back the curtain a little bit to hear what it's like to be young 20-something woman looking into a small town and thinking to set down roots there with your husband and commit to this Jewish community. So tell us a little bit. Okay, so I guess no story starts when it starts. You know, it always starts a little earlier. So I guess you could say that from a pretty young age, I knew that Shlichus was the life that I wanted. This was a life that was modeled all around me, primarily by my parents and my home, eventually by my siblings, especially with my sisters. I practically grew up in their Chabad houses. And looking back, I felt very prepared. This life wasn't foreign to me at all. I knew what it entailed, or actually, I should say, I thought I knew what it entailed. And I was in. It wasn't like anything that I consciously had to work out. So when our turn came, going back to your question, my husband, Ashi, and I, it was like a very calm and peaceful experience. I think I felt overwhelmingly lucky because there were more than a few options on the table for us. And it was more like what was left was like choose between them, this or that, here or there. Some options were closer, some further. They weren't all the same, but basically all fit within what I had always imagined for myself. So it sounds pretty simple, right? Mm. 
if only. Yeah. <laughs> then, spoiler alert, the place we live in now. So that was just one more place. Everything about the place didn't fit into any picture that I had ever imagined. Like, not by a stretch. It was isolated and small. And most importantly, there were barely any Jews. Like, barely any Jews. I didn't think places like this got shluchim. Like, if I go back to that time, that's an overwhelming memory. Just like I felt it. Like, it just wasn't in my consciousness that a place like this would get a shliach. So interesting. How many Jews are in McAllen? 250 men, women, and children. I didn't even know that. Yeah. You know, if we're playing a numbers game, it's, there's no game, game over. Then a funny thing happened. I got to meet some of the Jews that lived here. A few, a few here, a few there. The thing was that each encounter was more special than the next. And I think the result of those interactions, of those meetings, of those moments that I had was that I started to have this gnawing feeling of, if we don't come here, who's going to take care of these Jews? I remember thinking that, and I remember feeling that, and I remember where I was when I had that realization for the first time. I wasn't able to dismiss that little thought and that little feeling. Having lived in large cities my entire life, and having grown up a vibrant Jewish community, I knew very well what other Jews had access to. And I think this is what contributed to it, because I started to ask myself, don't these Jews deserve the same? The contrast was so stark, and maybe it just didn't seem fair to me. The problem was that nothing about what I was now considering, and I don't even know if I shared it, even with Ashi, that I was considering it. Like, that's how scary the thought was to me, in my own mind. It didn't match up with anything that I had ever seen or imagined. I didn't know anyone who moved to a place like this. This kind of shlichus was less common, to say the least. I just didn't know anybody who had done this. So that really made it difficult for me to think of it as a reality. And then on top of that, I had so many other easy choices, comfortable choices, incredible opportunities. But there was just something telling me that I couldn't walk away from the one choice that scared me the most. And I remember saying to Ashi, my husband, more than once, more than once, I guess when I finally shared my thoughts with him, if the Rebbe would tell me to go, I would go without a question. Like I had already worked it out and come to that place. But who says the Rebbe would send us? or anyone else for that matter. And is it even responsible to move to a place with so few Jews? And even if this place really needs a shliach, so if we can make the case, who says it should be us? Especially with the other things that we had on the table. So it was my birthday, and we went to the aisle, and in my pan, in my letter to the Rebbe, I didn't hold back. Like Tanya, <laughs> I just, you know, those moments, I laid it out, every question, every doubt, 
And I davened. I really davened. I prayed for clarity and direction. And I guess you could say I prayed really hard. Then after the ayo, I found the video. And how I found the video, I think, is like another story for another time. But you could say that it definitely wasn't random or by chance. The title of the video was To Be Near, Go Far. And it's a very short excerpt of a sicha, a talk given by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1968. Wow. A long time ago. Before I was born. <laughs> yeah. Let's just put it that way. So the Rebbe is speaking about the previous Rebbe's efforts to spread Yiddishkeit to all corners of the world, even to the most remote places on earth. And then suddenly, what felt like almost out of the blue, I guess it wasn't out of the blue, the Rebbe says, and I guess I'll paraphrase it and say it in my own words, the Rebbe asks this question, if one can benefit more Jews closer to home, why invest so much effort to reach one solitary Jew, one single family, or even a few families? And almost as if to answer the question, the Rebbe then says, Mitzvah habali yadach al If a mitzvah comes your way, do not delay. And the Rebbe goes on to say how God does nothing in vain. And the fact that you know about this is a sign that you're expected to do something about it. The Rebbe continues to speak almost like reading the minds of people. I don't know how else to describe it. And the Rebbe says, and one can rationalize to themselves that with the same effort required to succeed in a distant place, I could achieve much more closer to home, right? That's not a crazy idea. And I think it's an idea that resonated with me. So the Rebbe says, first of all, you may be wrong about that, which is pretty awesome. And the Rebbe says, second of all, all this thinking does is confuse you and distract you from your responsibility. And the Rebbe goes on to quote the halacha that a mitzvah that cannot be accomplished by anyone else must be your top priority. And the Rebbe explains that for a Jew who lives amongst many other Jews, there will be plenty of others who could help him. But for the Jew that others don't know about, that only you know about, if you yourself won't do anything for them, then who will help them? And the Rebbe uses the language, mi yatsilena, who will save them? The Rebbe goes on, the talk goes on. The Rebbe basically systematically makes the case point by point. And I guess I'll encourage anyone to watch this video. And as the Rebbe is concluding, he says, you have to realize that this mission is godly. 
Hashem chose you to fulfill this mission, specifically in this far corner, Pina Rechaika. Wow. And it is only through the fulfillment of this mission that you will be able to achieve your own shlemus, your own personal wholeness. And the Rebbe explains that through this, through walking this path, you will discover parts of yourself that would otherwise lay dormant if you were to remain in a place where the study of the Torah and the fulfillment of mitzvahs come without challenge. So it's hard to explain what I felt like when I sat there and I was listening to the Rebbe's words. I don't know how to describe it. Every question I had, everything that I had written in my pan, questions I had only dared ask myself, answered. As the clip ended, I turned to my husband and I said, let's go. He looked at me with his face like, are you serious? And I was serious. I was really serious. So go we did, and we've never looked back. Well, you were asking, does the Rebbe actually want us to go there? Like where there's 250 Jews, not 250 Jewish families, 250 Jews. Would the Rebbe ever send someone there? And the Rebbe says, yes, I would send you there for one Jew. For one Jew. So much has happened since then. This corner of the world is our home. Right. Our children were born here. Our life is here. The people we met in those encounters all those years ago are family. Right. They're family. And that family has only grown and expanded over time and over years. Baruch Hashem. Our city, our city is pulsing with Jewish life. It's wild. It's wild. You said it. We have a beautiful Chabad campus that is a beacon of light in our city and a spiritual home for every Jew for miles around. I am also not the same person, not by a stretch. When I think about the video today, I don't hear an answer to my question. I hear a prophecy. Everything the Rebbe said in that sicha came true. It came true for me. It came true for our work here. It came true for our family. And what's incredible is that I know with a very deep knowing that I am exactly where I'm meant to be, doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing. You know, when you asked me to share the story I thought, why share a story about something that is old news? But then I thought, maybe that's exactly the point. Nothing is how it was. I am not the same. Our city is not the same. The face and fabric of our community has been fundamentally transformed. I don't recognize it. All those years ago, I wanted to know that the Rebbe was sending us. I wanted to know that we were being sent. And what I think the Rebbe was really telling me then, and what he is telling all of us now, is that you are always sent, always, every moment, every encounter, every challenge. 
it all holds within it an opportunity to be part of God's vast eternal plan for you as an individual and for the world. That the purpose of our creation, the reason that we are here in this world, if we really seek to know that reason, we need to search the hashkacha pratis of our lives. The purpose of our creation is wrapped up in the hashkacha pratis of our lives. And if we take that seriously, if we don't dismiss it, miracles can happen. And I think that the miracle of shlichus is that the Rebbe took regular people and empowered us to live a reality so much greater than ourselves, so much greater than ourselves. And in the process, we would discover what the Rebbe saw in us all along. And we would uncover gifts and strength that we never knew we had. So I think if we listen to life's messages, if we don't ignore them, if we don't dismiss them, if we don't run away from them, because that's a hard one, if we act upon the opportunities that Hashem drops at our feet, if we understand that we are all God's messengers here in this world, each one in our own lives and each one in our own way, we will transform our lives. We will transform the lives of the people around us and we will transform the world. And I think that is the Rebbe's message and that is the Rebbe's vision that we call shlichus. I love how you said that the fact that it's old news is the point. The fact that we grow into the Rebbe's vision for the world, that the city grows into that beacon of light that you never could have imagined it to be. You're not still living in this tiny little small town with hardly any Jews. You're now living in a thriving Jewish community that you created in partnership with God's vision for how the world should look. And you've grown into that. And you as a person have grown into that. And your city has grown into that. I find that to be the most powerful message. I want to end off with the question to you of, in my view, as a very young person, you mentioned that 13 years ago, not so many people lived in such small towns. And I know that as the opportunities, I guess, for Shluchos began to narrow, people began to look at cities or towns or places that they would have never considered previously as candidates for Shluchim. And now as time continues to go on, so many years after the Rebbe spearheaded this initiative, and so therefore, thank God, there are shlichim all over the world. And it seems to be that for many people, there isn't even the opportunity to move to a small town if they wanted to. And I wonder what you would say the Rebbe's vision of reaching out to every single Jew, of seeking out the Pina Rechaika, that far distant corner, and really going there to shed godly light. What do you think the Rebbe's vision is for that in our day and age when not everyone will have the capacity or opportunity to be shluchim in the traditional sense? So I think that's the beautiful thing about truth, that when something is MS, it doesn't have to look any way. My story is my story. Your story is your story. I didn't either think that my shlichus was a shlichus in the traditional sense. And I had to go through that process. I think sometimes in life we resist 
things that come in packages that we didn't expect. Shlichus doesn't have to look any way. And I think it's really the message of the Rebbe, like open yourself up to the mission. Don't be concerned about what it looks like. Hashem has a job for us, right? Like between me and you, let's say being a mother. And we resist, you know, I didn't think it was going to be this way. So there's a resistance, but really the shlichus is there and you could do the shlichus if we get rid of the images. I think that's what it is. We need to focus on the Rebbe's message and get rid of the image that we think that that shlichus needs to look like. We run away from the things that scare us. And what scares us? Things that we're not comfortable with. Things that we didn't foresee it happening this way. We didn't see it looking this way. So therefore, it's just easier to leave on the side. So what I think we need to challenge ourselves in our lives, like what does it really mean to be a shliach of Hashem, is to know that that shlichus doesn't have to look any way. And if we could get rid of any preconceived notions or definitions of what it's supposed to look like and listen to what Hashem is telling us and ask ourselves in whatever situation we find ourselves or whatever path we're walking, what does Hashem want from me now? That is your shlichus. That is your answer. Yeah. And it's hard. It's really hard because between me and you, Tanya, it's human nature to resist a pina rechaika. Oh, yeah. Most normal people resist a pina rechaika. It's only the Rebbe that could get us to see a pina rechaika as a gateway to your greatness. Yeah. I, I don't know how, how else to say it. I love what you said. It's connected to the video that you watched, that you shared about in the beginning, about the ashkacha pratis of the circumstances, the fact that your husband already had a relationship with people in McAllen, the fact that you even knew about the place and the fact that it existed. Those messages were God telling you that this was your place. And so we meet someone in the street. It's like just the fact that you see this person in front of you is a sign that you have a responsibility to interact with them and share about your Yiddishkeit. Wherever you are, whoever you know, whatever circumstances or, you know, opportunities Hashem gives you as the arrows to where your shlichus is. Right. I think that it's also people have a lot of discomfort with that. And I think that the answer is ask yourself that question and listen for Hashem's answer. And that is going to look different in every person's life. One of the reasons that I do feel that I'm thriving here is because I don't pay a lot of attention to what other people are doing. And I keep asking myself this question. What does Hashem want from me right now? Even within my life here, there are so many competing interests, all so important. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to know in every moment what should I be doing? I think this is probably something that a lot of people in my situation can relate to. And I think for me, I just keep going back to that question. What does Hashem want from me now? And to be in that moment and to listen for that answer. And usually the answer is right in front of you, whether it's in the eyes of your child, in the needs of a friend, whatever that is. 
the answer is usually right there. So I think that's an exercise that doesn't end once you find your path. I think it's a daily thing. It's an every moment thing. I love what you just said, because I think that we tend to look at certain things specifically like shluchas as this one-off decision that you make to move to a place, which obviously in the traditional sense it is, this decision that you make to move to a place. But in essence, really, it's a question that you ask yourself every single moment. What does Hashem want for me right now? How can I be God's messenger in this world right now? And that looks different constantly, and that looks different in every single moment. And really listening for the answer for that specific moment and seeing how you can best show up every day is a lot more doable, I think, as a path to shluchos for a lot of people than moving to a different city sometimes. That was good. I like that a lot, actually. Good afternoon, sir. Are you Jewish? Do I be Jewish by any chance? Excuse me, sir. Are you Jewish? In 1966, the Rebbe introduced the concept of mivtsayim for the first time. If you have ever seen a mitzvah tank, or a chassid on a street corner, rapping to fill in with a random passerby, or a woman asking a stranger if she is Jewish. You have witnessed Miftsayim in action, a revolutionary initiative which encourages every Jew, wherever they are, to be mindful of other Jews around them and to interact with them based on our shared birthright, the Torah. Today, I want to focus on a mivtzah geared specifically towards women, the mivtzah of Shabbos candles. Introduced in 1979, the Rebbe elected Mrs. Esther Sternberg to spearhead this project of light. What happened was that the Rebbe came up with an idea, and he said that the world, we are living in a very terrible spiritual darkness, and we have to bring more light to the world. And he wants to make a suggestion that we go out and find every Jewish woman, and even young girls, even as young as the age of three, and get them to light Shabbat candles. And by making a blessing over a physical candle, they are bringing spiritual light into the world. And he actually said that when the Baal Shem Tov, when he foresaw that there was something happening, something bad happening to the Jewish people somewhere, he would come into his synagogue and say, turn on the lights. They didn't have electricity. They used to light candles. Put on a lot of lights, even if it was daytime, because there's a lot, there's a lot of correlation between the world down here and the world up there. And if he wanted from up there to be a spiritual light, he said, we need more light down here. And that's what the Rebbe said we have to do. So I had the honor of speaking with Inbal Levin, one of the proudest Jews I have ever met, and someone who I really admire for the way she moves through the world with her Yiddishkeit displayed so proudly. What I find remarkable about Inbal is that she is a woman who works in a totally secular environment, and she has made it her business to ask people if they are Jewish, to tell them about her Jewish identity to share the light of Shabbos candles with them, to give them what is already theirs. Inbal, thank you so much for coming. I feel like you're the queen of Mivtsayim. <laughs> okay, so tell me, how did you get into it? I feel like it's something that obviously the Rebbe was into, but like, how did you as a person get into it? First of all, I'm just a very outgoing person in general. So... 
It never bothered me to just stop random people on the street to ask them anything, even if it's like, I really like the way you smell, what perfume you were right? <laughs> or, and so obviously, you know, asking people to light, if they want to light Shabbos candles or if they're Jewish, really, you know, was something that I, I always felt comfortable with. But I would say also I was raised in a home where we were taught to be very proud of our Jewish identity. And that has always been a huge part of my life. So it felt like a really wonderful channel for my loud personality of to see the Rebbe talking so passionately about giving out Shabbos candles and finding Jews, finding people who are Jewish and asking them to light Shabbos candles, asking them to commit to a mitzvah. I really felt seen like, oh, like that's such a wonderful way to encourage people who have loud personalities to use it for positive things. I love how you're saying that because I feel like it's so beautiful to me that it's a natural channel for your energy. Some people say like, oh, move time is really not my thing. And you're like, no, this is my personality. So of course, move time is my thing. I'd love if you could share any experiences that you've had on Miftayim that were really special to you. Sure. I mean, there's so many. So when I taught in the Upper West Side, I was vigilant about going on Miftayim. It was actually like the first year that I moved here. So I would go on Miftayim every week and like go into the city. So when I was working in the Upper West Side, it was easy because I would just walk to one of the train stops and on my way to the train, like I would just skip a stop basically. Like instead of taking a train from the first stop, I would just walk to that second stop. Okay, smart. And then on the way to the train, I would just give out, I would just stop anybody. And then I would like be like, Hashem, I'm not starting Shabbos until I find at least one Jew. I have to give out at least one. And I, wow. I actually keep track of like every week, how many I gave out. And my goal was to give out 770. But that, so that wow. first year, I was really, really vigilant about it. And first of all, there's just so many beautiful moments just in general, showing people like people, most of the time, I would say there's a, there's a few times that I had some sour experiences, but it just Mm. even more, but most of the time people are just so they're like, Oh yeah. You know, either, either they'll be like, yeah, thank you so much. Or I already like, I oftentimes have people will say, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not Jewish. I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm sorry. But can I change my (laughs) right? I'm like, Oh yeah. They're, they're, they're also, a lot of them are caught off guard. They're like, there are a few times where I'll, I would tell people like, oh, excuse me, you know, I'm giving out Shabbat candles. Are you Jewish? And they'd be like, oh, I don't want to be a burden. So like, yeah, I'm Jewish. But like, I don't want to take that from you. I'm like, no, no, please. Like, you're doing me a favor by taking it from me. There was like a psychological aspect to it that I really enjoyed, like seeing how to really approach people in a way that they realize that they're doing me a favor by by taking it. You know, it's a very New York thing to be like, or I guess more Seattle really where I'm from, but like to be very polite. And to, you know, not want to be a burden, but when they realize how passionate I am about the cause, most of the times they're willing to take it. And, you know, even though I'm very loud and I'm comfortable doing it, it does take a few minutes and like a few tryings of being like, oh, excuse me, are you Jewish? And like, you know, you feel a little bit shy in the beginning, but like, and even I do sometimes, but you know, just once you get into it, it's like a muscle that works. But, and also I want to say that I get people say like, how are you so comfortable doing that? And it's interesting because I don't work in any Jewish industries anymore. I teach in a non-Jewish school. I, you know, I'm breaking into the entertainment industry, which people say is run by Jews, but definitely not religious Jews, the fashion industry as well. And I always have Shabbos candles on me to ask, you know, I was doing a fashion show for anthropology and my stylist happened to be, not happened, of course, she was Jewish and I quickly arranged to, to, to have Shabbos candles, you know, be brought to her. So people will say like, Oh, you know, 
how do you have the courage to do that? And I'm like, if the rabbi told us to do it, then obviously he's the only approval I need. If I have his approval and his encouragement, I don't care what anyone else says. So having his like marching orders being the reason why I'm doing it and not because like it's a woke thing to do or like a trending thing to do, those things ebb and flow, right? You know, like the Rebbe's word is, is eternal. So knowing that he was or still is really at the forefront of like doing things like this was unheard of. I remember in seminary, my I went to Tzvah, I went to like a Chabad seminary. One of the rab, one of my rabbis, I think his name was Rabbi Zilber, he was saying that from people in Israel were opposing a lot of the Lubavitch Bachram who were doing Mifzat Tzfilin when the Rebbe was encouraging Bachram to go out and get people to put on Tzfilin. And these religious Jews were appalled. How dare you? How dare you ask a Jew who didn't watch Nagelwasser to put on tefillin. So my rabbi said, okay, so you can start Mifsa Nagelwasser, right? Like, <laughs> you, like who, who's stopping you? But to see that the rabbi was met with a lot of opposition, which people don't really talk about a lot, but he faced so much opposition for almost every single Mifsa that he initiated. And Mifsa Shabbos candles was no different. I don't know if I answered your question, but... <laughs> Yeah, I guess like for the most part, you're saying that you've kind of experienced positive feedback when you go out there and you ask people, are you Jewish and do you want job scandals? Yeah, for the most part. And even when I don't, even when it's a blow, I'm like, oh, but I'm in good company. <laughs> like, I don't know. You know, like when, even when it's like, I didn't find any Jewish people or even when people do make nasty comments, but when people do make those comments, like a, a, it, it hurts and I feel that and I sit in that pain that I'm like, okay, but the Rebbe also faced this to some extent also. So I'm in good company and it shows the importance of what I'm doing. It really takes a lot of internal strength, even if you're naturally an outgoing person, to go out there and say, like, I'm so proud and certain about who I am and about the fact that I'm sharing something with you that's positive and full of light, that I will approach you and you're, you are minding your own personal business and I'm coming up to you with candles and I'm like, do you want to light candles? That takes a lot of strength. You know, it also reminds me of this. I always think of this muscle when people ask me, like, how do you have the courage to just ask random strangers on the street? And I think to myself, imagine you are walking behind two people on the street and you saw a $100 bill right behind them and you pick it up. Of course, you're going to ask either of them, hey, is this yours? Is this yours? Like, did you lose this? Right? Like, and you wouldn't feel shy. I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't. I'm sure even people who are naturally more on the quiet side would understand that that's a logical thing to do. It's something that's lost. It looks like this person might be the owner of it, one or two. And you would ask them, you would stop mm. and ask them, right? With the sense of like urgency, it's a hundred dollars. Or even if it's a diamond ring, I don't know. Think of something really valuable. And then I think to myself, okay, so if I'm walking down the street and there's someone who potentially theoretically could be Jewish and I have something that could spark their Jewish identity, there should be that same sense of urgency. Like, of course you would ask them, like, what, what's it going to hurt? So they'll say no. Okay. But they'll be grateful that I asked, right? That's kind oh, well. of the muscle that I think of, like the, and the Shabbos candles and the whole idea of, of Miftayim in general, when the Rebbe talked about each of the mitzvahs that he, that he launched. The Rebbe would never push people to be fully observant Jews. That wasn't that. I mean, maybe that was the long-term goal, but the Rebbe always said it's just one mitzvah, just one mitzvah to reawaken that spark. So the act like that I have the potential to find someone who seemingly lost touch with their Jewish identity. And I, I would never turn that away if it was with any other item. So this is just the same thing, in my opinion, even uh. more. 
I love that because I think that's something that people really struggle with with Miftayim is that you can feel like you're missionizing, like you're a missionary that's coming up to someone. But the core distinction there is that a missionary is coming up and saying, I have an answer that you don't have and I have something that you don't have. Let me share with you. Whereas Miftayim, you're saying, I know you dropped a $100 bill and you have a soul and I can give you these candles and they belong to you and you can buy your own candles. It's just that like you already have this inside of you and I just want to tap you on the shoulder and let you know. Exactly. That's exactly, that's how I view Beautiful. it. And there are moments where I'm like, oh, I'm scared. Should I ask them? This person looks scary. I don't know. This person looks unapproachable. And when I remind myself like, hello, I potentially have something that can remind them about their identity and their Jewish soul. I would not be able to sleep at night knowing that I gave up that opportunity to even ask, even if it's a no, even if it's a no, you know, to even ask that. And by the way, we spoke about it last year when, I mean, anti-Semitism is always raging, but last year was at a, a particular high after what was going on in Israel and there was a 600% increase in anti-Semitism in America. And we felt it in New York. I mean, we were like, whoa, like the place that I go running, there was like major pro-Palestinian. And I'm using air quotes here because it was not about Palestinian rights. It was about Jew hatred. And it was clear because they were literally searching for Jews to like just attack. And that's where I go running. That's right in my neighborhood. So the next day, this is a crazy story, but I was an extra on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So that day, so they were filming season, they're filming season four. So I was scheduled to be an extra on the Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday after this whole thing. So like right in the heat of it, I was getting my, I was doing a fitting and I was walking to the fitting. It was Eric Shabbos and I was freaking out because I was like, I really hope that this costume fitting is going to end it. Like I need to be home in time for Shabbos. Like right. it wasn't too far from where I live, but I was like, you basically had to get COVID tests and you had to wait for the test and then you had to get fitted. It was the whole thing. Anyway, so I was like, Hashem, I promise you, I'm taking Shabbos candles with me. <laughs> if you let them fit me in a sneeze outfit and I make it home in Dapper Shabbos, I promise you, I will go home and say I'm on my way back home. I promise nice. you. And I did. And it worked out very well. And thank God everything went smoothly. And actually the lady doing my fitting was so nice. She, she, I told her I was Jewish and I'm Orthodox and asked if she could accommodate. And she said, of course. And then she said, you know, I saw what's going on in the news. I'm so sorry to hear that what's going on, you know, to your people. And we stand with you. It was really sweet. And then I basically walked home and it was like crazy. It was an hour before Shabbos and I was just rushing and I was stopping Jews, stopping anyone really. I was like, excuse me. And people were like, why, why did you do it? I'm like, oh, and the people who were searching for Jews to attack, did they ask for anyone's permission to do that? No. So they could do that. They could search for Jews. I could search for Jews. Okay. You know, it just, it baffles me to think that like we have, but that anyone would think to be meek about that when there are so many people who outwardly are looking for Jews to attack. So I can outwardly look for Jews to reignite and to reconnect. So to me, it just doesn't seem at all like a question. But when I was walking, this is an interesting story about people who feel discouraged about the time you feel like you you don't find anyone, anyone, everyone's saying, no, you can't find any Jews. So when I was walking back from the fitting to my apartment, I mean, it's in Brooklyn. So the, the odds of people being Jewish were very high. But I stopped a few people and I said, hey, excuse me, are you, I'm giving out Shabbat candles. Are you Jewish? One person was like, why are you doing this? I'm like, oh, because there's just been recent attacks on Jews. And this is, we, we were taught to fight darkness with light. But as I was continuing walking, I, I bumped into another person. And I said, excuse me, I'm giving out Shabbat candles. Are you Jewish? And she said, I'm not Jewish, but you are the fourth person that has asked me that so far. What is going on? And I explained to her 
exactly, you know, that there's an increase in anti-Semitism. We were taught by our leader to be louder and prouder Jews. And she was like, okay, she appreciated my explanation, but she walked away. And even though she wasn't Jewish, and even though she may not have been Jewish, but she understood the message that when people try to attack us, we will come out as stronger. So that's also a form of Mitzayim, even if it's not necessarily you didn't find a Jew. First of all, you don't know if the people who said no actually are not Jewish. But also, so that other people, the nations of the world can see this is how Jews oppose anti-Semitism, by being louder and prouder Jews and by, by you know, walking as proud Jews down the street. That's also a form of Mitzayim. I like that. Just to teach people what it means to like combat darkness with light. That's what you were doing with that time on that Friday afternoon after that uptick in anti-Semitism. I want to press you, Imbal, because even though you didn't give me any specific stories, I wonder if like you paused and thought of it. Were there any special encounters that you've had over the years, even if it wasn't like a story with a resolution, but just someone responding in a way that you found moving or something that really uplifted you in your interaction with another Jew when you approach them? It's a good question. So my favorite Mifzayim stories are actually when I find Jewish people in my industry, mm. in the industries that I'm working in. So I love fashion. I love clothing. I actually have, I have to find this picture. It's on my Facebook. I used to live in Seattle. I grew up in Seattle. So there's a, anthropology is one of my favorite stores. And I would go there every week just to go shopping and try on clothing and just twirl around. And there was one woman there who, every time I was there, she was there and she would come and watch what I was wearing. And I would explain to her why I can't try on these pants or why that skirt wouldn't work or whatever it is. And she was like, why is that? And my mother actually came with me and she was wearing a tichel. So, you know, it sparked a conversation. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm Jewish. I was like, are you Jewish? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I'm Jewish also. And she talked about, she like studied in the University of Washington and Hebrew studies and with a rabbi that I actually know. And I brought her Shabbos candles and she was so excited. And then years later, I came back to visit my sister there. And I went back to that same anthropology and she was there and I made sure to bring her a menorah. And she was so excited. And the picture I have with me and her is she's holding a shoe, <laughs> like a, a gorgeous boot. And I'm holding this menorah and it's like in anthropology. And it was just such a beautiful juxtaposition to show that like, wow, this is really such a blessing to be a Lubavitcher, to know that our passions never have to be squelched and that we can always figure out a way to integrate shlichus in whatever it is we're doing, even if we're just walking down the street, you know? So that's the one we're I love that example because it's so representative of that message, which is that you can be in anthropology and the Rebbe is basically encouraging you to stay mindful of your Jewish identity, to stay mindful of people around you and to think, does anyone else here also have a Jewish soul? And then we can connect to on that soul level while holding shoes, while exploring (laughs) fashion. I love it. Exactly. I think also what that story shows is that people often think like, oh, Mifzayim, it means going on the street and asking strangers. And to an extent it does, that is one way of doing it. And that's a way that I really connect to it. But really Mifzayim is really just a mindset. Well, part of it is, is a mindset in that like, wherever you are, how can I let people know that I'm Jewish? Right? We're not boys. So we don't look visibly Jewish. And actually I, I felt this conflict when this when the uptick happened in May, because a lot of like Bahrain, let's say, or boys that have the tzitzis and the yarmulke that look visibly Jewish, they were a bigger target. And I'm like, well, that's not fair. How can I be a bigger target? You know, like, what can I wow. do to make myself, to, how, how, how come they look Jewish and I don't necessarily have that look? And so that obviously wearing a name necklace, which by the way, is a huge, like a, a Hebrew name necklace. Wow. I get stopped a lot from Israelis in New York and they ask questions and it's a huge prompter also 
back to Miftayim being a mindset, which is like, okay, maybe if you're not comfortable going onto the streets and stopping strangers to ask if they're Jewish, like, I understand that. I respect that. The question is, what can you do throughout your day, whether you're a scientist or a psychologist, how can you make it clear that you are a Jew and that you're available if anyone, any fellow Jews have questions? You know, that's also, that's also a form of Miftayim. I love that you said it's a mindset. By the way, even just the act, people think of the act as something like you set aside time in your day to do this activity of going in time. But then there's also just like keeping the candles in your purse, which is not something that I do. So I'm not going to pretend like I do. But I'm saying even just that, like that also is a mindset, which is that like, yes, this is an item I carry around because if I do become mindful of someone near me and I ask them if they're Jewish, I have resources for them on hand because I'm thinking about others and like others' spiritual journey. And as you said, that it's not just literally candles. It's even just being willing to connect to another Jew on a soul level and be a resource and share. Because if you've had an education, you kind of have a responsibility to share with other Jews. Like if you see that hundred dollar bill behind someone, are you really not going to tap them and say you drop something? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Love it. Thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. I love the passion you have for this. It's very unique. I haven't met that many people who are like, Miftayim is my thing. This is something <laughs> that I, I go out there and I do it. You're not even working in a Jewish industry. And the fact that you're keeping that flame alive is beautiful. Seriously, yeah. strength to you. It's the least I could do for the Rebbe risked and gave up so much. It's really the least I could do. I love it. All right. Nice to speak to you. The Rebbe's message always was, this place already has godly potential. You just need to reveal it. This person already has a godly soul. You just need to tap them on the shoulder and tell them. So where is our garden? Where is our beautiful world? How much longer until we can lay down our shovels and reap the beauty that we've sowed? On Chavches Nisan, April 11th, 1991, the Rebbe brokenheartedly addressed a room full of Chassidim and said, how is it that the redemption has not yet come, that the world is still in a state of exile, and that each of us, in our own lives, are exiled too? What more can I do? I have done all I can. The only thing that remains for me to do is to give over the matter to you. I have done my part. From this point on, it is in your hands. I asked Dini Burstyn to share her reflections as a young teenager when she heard the Rebbe speak those words. My first memory of that night is our high school made a farbringen for the girls to get together and discuss and unpack what the Rebbe had said. It felt like an important night. The Rebbe said, I have done all that I can to bring Mashiach, and now it's up to you. 
I remember thinking, is the Rebbe frustrated with me? Is the Rebbe frustrated with us? Did we fail? Or had we not done our part? The Rebbe was always talking to us about bringing Mashiach and encouraging us to spread Yiddishkeit. I wondered if we had let the Rebbe down. Also, at that age, it was hard for me to think of the Rebbe in human terms as someone that could possibly have limits or that there could be something that he couldn't do. The Rebbe gives miraculous brachis. Over the next few days, it was definitely a topic of discussion. We talked about it with each other, with our teachers, with our families. And one of my brothers really clarified it for me in a way that I could understand. The Rebbe was saying, if you're waiting for me to bring Mashiach on my own, you're missing the point. We need to do it together. We need to be partners. The Rebbe was saying, I have brought you until this point. This is the furthest I can carry you. I cannot bring Mashiach into your life for you. I cannot access all the opportunities you have in your personal circumstances to reveal the godliness in this world. Who have you met? What are your talents? Where do you live? Only you can turn your environment into a garden. Only you can tend to the seeds that God planted in your backyard. Mashiach comes when we each take ownership over our environments, over our internal headspace, over our personal relationships and our relationships with God. And then moving outwards, taking responsibility to reveal the godliness in our environments, to tap fellow Jews on the shoulder, literally or figuratively, to show up as shluchim, ambassadors of light. In whatever corner of the world we are in, Elokai zakinina betoatcha uvimitzotecha mechaberet nishmati tamidelecha mechaber mechaber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.